0: You aspire to be a superintendent. You think you know what the job might be like, but you may not really know.
1: They bring together like-minded people. As well as organizations that are supporting school systems.
0: And they bring the problem of practice with a group of people to talk through it, and then with vendors who provide solutions. And when you think about a notion of getting better, a lot of times people think that you are sick, but you don't have to be sick to get better. Having either that trusted network of colleagues when you're in practice or prior to practice becomes really important. That's
1: what IEI does. Brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation, where like-minded, hard-working professionals come to listen, learn, and connect. This week on Education Thought Leaders. I catch up with my old friend, Jessica Reed Slowersky, CEO of Open Up Resources. We chat leadership, we chat parenting while leading, we chat challenges that life throws at you, and we learn about the new thing she's working on, which is a one-to-one instructional model for early literacy. All right, I'm excited about this one. I am talking to my old friend. Are we old? How are we old? My my are old. My longtime friend, uh Jessica Reed Slawarski. How are you, Jess?
0: I'm doing well, Doug. It's really nice to catch up.
1: Yeah, glad we're catching up, uh, even though we're letting other people listen to it. But um <laughs> some things have to be off, off limits, I guess. But uh Jessica is the CEO of Open Up Resources and um also recently started a new initiative around literacy tutoring called Ignite. And we're gonna get into all that. But um let's I, I wanna just dial it back to, you know, to give us give us the story. I love the founder stories. Give us the story of how Jessica came to be the CEO of Open Up and you know, your your career starting off as a teacher and all that stuff. Could tell us the story.
0: Well, the fun thing, Doug, about you and I having this conversation and you asking me about my story is that. You've known me since I was a baby teacher. So I began my career as a fifth grade teacher in the Bronx with Teach for America. And, um, you know, within the first week of my first year of teaching, my eyes were wide open to the inequities in public education in this country. Um, I grew up in a bubble, attending really good public schools and Just assuming because I didn't know any better, and that was my privilege that every kid in our country had the kind of um, rich educational experiences that I had kindergarten through 12th grade. And it wasn't until I stepped into a classroom and um, very quickly discovered that that was just not the case. And as far as I could tell, the only difference was that the kids I was teaching were all black and brown. And um, I was ill prepared to teach them. I did not have high quality instructional materials. I did not have um, aligned professional learning around how to how to teach those materials and ongoing professional learning to improve my practice. And so um, it was really difficult for me each day showing up, wanting to serve my students, many of whom, especially in reading, were well below grade level and not having the resources or support to do so. And so um, early on, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to find a way to ensure that no teacher ever experienced what I was experiencing, meaning showing up each day wanting to teach their students, wanting to close achievement gaps, but not having the resources or or training to do so. And I know that I made this promise to myself because um, I'm so hyper type A and I write everything down and I actually have the notebook that I wrote that in.
1: Yeah, that's cool.
0: And um I think back on my on my baby teacher self and I'm like, where did that? Moxie come from right um to, to make that kind of commitment while also having no idea how I was going to do that. And um what ended up happening was that I'm the kind of person who just says yes to pretty much everything and As I moved through my career in education and I kept saying yes to things, I had more and more opportunities and experiences. So I started with TFA. I did a brief stint with you over at Wireless Generation, which is now Amplify. I realized that I really missed the classroom and I wanted to go back and I wanted to be in a place where I could be truly developed as a teacher. And so I found my way to a high performing network of charter schools in New York city
1: Academy, Um, right?
0: Yep. Success Mm -hmm. Academy. I was a founding first grade teacher at a brand new, um, elementary school when Eva was doing her first phase of expansion from her, you know, flagship school to then adding three additional new schools. And it was when I was a founding first grade teacher. So that would be my third year of teaching that I finally learned how to teach kids to read. And I was completely hooked. I was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. And what really stood out to me at the time was that it wasn't that hard. Mm -hmm. There was a high quality curriculum, success for all that I had been given, lots of training, um, a school leader who was ensuring that we were implementing with fidelity and a maniacal focus school-wide on ensuring that all kids were learning to read. And that really stuck with me as a formative experience as an educator. I then became a fourth grade teacher. I moved into school leadership. I then did the thing that um, very few people in education do, which is well, two things. One, I left mid-school year because I burned out. And two, I went back to district schools from the charter world. yeah. And my goal was to bring the best practices, particularly around what I had learned in literacy to district schools. And so I began coaching principals around New York City in elementary all the way through high school. And it was during this time that I was coaching principals that I was approached by an entrepreneur who had an idea for a literacy app. I began working nights and weekends, um, helping to build this app. The app then became an ed tech company, LightSail Education. And I was co-founder of that company, chief academic officer and chief product officer. And it was during this time that I began to understand this, this part of myself that I didn't even know existed that is highly entrepreneurial.
1: But in, in fairness, like you probably couldn't articulate it till that point, but somebody who moves jobs every year to like, open up, is this the longest job you've ever held? Yeah. Right. Or light sale, probably one of those two. Right. So right. it's like, you've, you finally figured out where you're supposed to, I was the same, I did this and then this and then this, like that was, it was in you and you were trying to find the thing. And then you finally connected, um, with the light cell team and, and that now you've launched into some more amazing stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, when you're open to opportunities, and also for me, it's always been about impact, right? How does each new opportunity give me the chance to impact more students? And so to go from being a classroom teacher to a grade level leader, to a school leader, to coaching principals across New York City, you know, a network of 22 schools that I was working with, to then with LightSail being at a national level and working with school districts across the country to then finding my way to open up resources and um, becoming CEO of what is now a thriving national nonprofit with a portfolio of um, mathematics and English language arts programs spanning kindergarten through 12th grade, all openly accessible to educators which Comes full circle, right? To this commitment that I made to myself once upon a time that I wanted to make sure no other teacher felt the way I did. And now here I am running open up. We've got this suite of phenomenal curricula, all of which any teacher can find their way to and access and begin using in their classroom, plus also this openly accessible community of practitioners. So that teachers can get support in real time around implementing these materials.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it helps that you have a breadth of uh, diversity of kind of in-class experiences, different roles and stuff. But I'm curious, what what are you what are you doing better uh, at OpenUp because of what you learned at LightSail, like this your second time through? Um, as a you know, a C level leader in an in an entrepreneurial organization. What uh w- what do you think you're better at now?
0: So when I co-founded Light I was still early in my career, right? I was I was 30 years old. And I'm now 40 years old. And a lot of am I allowed to curse in this podcast?
1: Uh we we try to keep it family friendly, but you know.
0: <laughs> Good thing I asked.
1: It's hard for you and I to have a conversation without dropping an F-bomb though. So
0: I know, right? Well, I wasn't. I was going to use a different word. But what I was going to say is that I was 30 years old when I co-founded that company. I'm 40 years old now. And I've been CEO for um, four years, I think. And a lot of stuff has happened in my life. And I think that the crucibles that I've experienced have made me a better, stronger leader now in the organization that I run than I was before. There are certain strengths that I bring to the work, whether I was 30 years old or 40, that have served the organizations I've led, one of which is my deep empathy for educators, my deep, deep instructional knowledge, my understanding of how school systems work and the things that kids need, teachers need, school leaders need and district level leadership also need and being able to understand those systems really well and how they work together and therefore how to design a product and scale a product and service of all of those different constituents. I had all of that, I still have all of that and I further honed it, but this other side of me that has gone through um, things like becoming a mother, um, you know, battling breast cancer and being a cancer survivor. And there's a
1: little tiny baby.
0: Yeah. while having a little tiny baby. And so this um, and having
1: a high powered job like.
0: And, right. Yeah. Right. And and so this um, more human side of me came forward as a result of those experiences. And I now. Bring that humanity to my leadership, and I I feel very strongly that it makes me that much better of a leader.
1: Empathy is—I didn't really use that word much ten years ago, right? Um, But now it's it's become sort of a really important part of my work and something I I always think about. You know, when I went through. Difficult things, like you know, I, my first marriage ended because my wife died very suddenly. It was a horrible, horrible thing. This was, you know, right before I met you. Uh, like when you and I met and you joined Wireless, that was when like Mary and I were just dating. So mm-hmm. it's like a cool. I have good memories about that because it was like very I happy time to be. We're
0: gonna. You were gonna go meet up with her that night after you yeah. drinks.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. she remembers it too because it was like it was one of our earlier dates. You know, we've been married yeah. like twelve years now. So, um, but anyway. A life change I made after losing Kelsey was um, I was prioritizing work too much, and literally, I every morning I checked my personal email first, work email second, and that's I've done that ever since, just to you know catch up with with my people first and then check in on work and those kinds of things. I think you know I think about that now because. you know, I want to make sure the people who've trusted me to come work here know that like I care about them and I want to make sure that they and their families and friends are are OK, uh, more importantly than, you know, getting the TPS report done. Right. That's that's. And I think there's there's now like societal pressure on leaders to be more empathetic and to look out for the well-being of the people that work with them. And um, I don't know if you guys are looking at any of this stuff, but I heard let me just give a quick shout out to my other the other uh, powerhouse, Jess in my life, Jess Gartner from Allibue, um, She gave a talk at one of our things about a year ago about all the HR practices they've implemented to try to be more kind of focused on staff well-being and forcing people to take time off because I never thought of it this way because you and I just kind of work, work, work. But like there are people who will do that just because they're worried that I'll be mad at them if they take time off. I never considered that. Right. So, um, you know, I think that this we're, we're evolving as as a as a people <laughs> in terms of how we do our corporate america you know
0: right right something i have to be really mindful of is that the way i am wired is such that i love to work like it is the work that i do i feel very lucky because it is so deeply gratifying and especially with this new initiative that we launched last summer called ignite reading where we are teaching kids to read. And the results that we're seeing are phenomenal, which is just so motivating. and i'm I'm wanting to to scale this program as quickly as possible. And you know, it's it's an initiative that in many ways is like a baby startup inside of a larger organization that I'm running, which means that I'm CEO of one thing and all and also simultaneously founder of this other, thing yeah. taking on a life of its own. And it's a lot. And so
1: how does that work by the way? <laughs> like, is it a separate, can you like, is, is it a, like company within a company or what, what's the deal?
0: Yeah. I'll explain that in a moment, but let sure. me tie a bow on this thought, which is that I have to be really aware of the fact that the way that I want and like to work and the way that I then integrate taking care of myself, is not what works for everyone else. And yet I'm the leader and they're watching me. And so I have to spend a lot of time reminding my staff and my direct reports. I do this because I like it, but it's not my expectation for you. Each of us is different. My expectation is that you're tackling these priorities in support of strategic initiatives and taking care of yourself. And while I work a million hours that's not what I want from each of you right and so there is like that tension is real and I think a lot of leaders who are wired this way struggle with it
1: Um, yeah my friend Tracy Davis who also works with you guys and she's a coach and mentor here um, for our aspiring superintendent program she was like she, she just sort of told me, you know, you need to investigate the schedule send button on your outbound emails. <laughs> She's like, I don't mind getting an email from you at 5 a.m. Pacific time on a Saturday. But people working for you, for your organization, might feel that they have to hop to when they see an email come in at 5 a.m. And I, I literally didn't know that feature existed. I just oh, always assume. Yeah, I'll send emails on Saturday. You don't have to read them, but people do. Right. So. Right. That's a new practice I've implemented It's all because of Tracy.
0: Well, another practice I've implemented is I try really hard not to work on the weekend. I will work crazy hours during the week, especially if I'm traveling for business, right? Because then you're in meetings all day. You can't get to your inbox. You get to your inbox late at night and there's still things you need to do. Um, But I really try Saturday and Sunday to not look at my email. And to just be present with Penelope and my family and my friends and even just like finding that time to really um, like care for myself after such a crazy week. And so then I find that I'm that much more motivated to be even more efficient during the week. But that schedule send feature when I'm up late at night, banging out emails, because that's literally the first chance I've had to get into my inbox I try and also schedule the send so that it'll show up in other people's inboxes during working hours the very next day.
1: Yeah. I I would always hear, you know, superintendents that I work with tell me, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't really read email and I can't get to it till, you know, uh, like I, I save your stuff to get back to you on Saturday morning. I didn't really know what they meant by that when I was just, it was just me and one other person here. But the minute this got more complicated, I realized, Oh, now I know what they're talking about. Right, Um, Right. I started meditating. Uh That's, that's been my strategy to try to manage the, like, cause p- things can start to spiral and feel crazy. And mm-hmm. it's weird. I never thought I'd be a meditation guy, but um, I found that that helps me, particularly in my, my mornings. Like I'm, I come in ready to go. I used to start mornings being like, ah, now I come in. I'm like, okay, you know, namaste. Mm-hmm. So it's
0: namaste. been a cool,
1: it's been a cool so, new practice for me. It's fun.
0: So I've tried meditating and, and I, I've read all of the benefits of meditating. And my therapist is like, you know, she'll send me different meditations to do. And, um, no surprise I am terrible at meditating. Um, but what I found works for me that to me is meditative is like physical exercise and just like being present in my body in that way. And so, I have um, a really strong yoga practice that I've had since I was 18 and I try and do yoga um, as much as possible. And, and I really like hot yoga and, and just that release and being present on my mat. And then uh, I also, in August, I finally got a Peloton. I was like holding out, right? I'm like, I hate cycling. I, this is not for me. And then. My daughter's teacher actually was like, I think you would really like this and you can do 30 days. And if you don't like it, send it back. Right. I was like, oh, okay, that feels low stakes. Got a Peloton. Did my very first class and was like, there is no way this bike is going back. Like I had no idea how much I needed that bike and that form of exercise and just the affirmations that teachers will give, which Mm -hmm. I need. All the teaching, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's been amazing also for my wellness and just my ability to decompress. And then, you know, given, you know, how it is when our schedules are so insane. Yeah. You can't always find a studio that has a class at exactly the time you need it. And so it's great right. to just be like, I have 30 minutes right now until my next meeting, I am going to jump on my bike.
1: Yeah. It's great. It's, it's a, and I haven't done enough of it this week, but like what I found lately is I'm I will make sure I get my meditation in in the morning, and sometimes sacrifice the workout because mm-hmm. that's just been more important lately. But then I'm like, bummed I didn't you know do rides this okay. week, and I'm a very competitive person. So the Peloton yeah. like triggered the competitive part of my brain, right. which is fine. Okay,
0: who is your favorite teacher?
1: <laughs> Are we gonna do this on the podcast? Yeah. Um. So, like, I have my my sort of like my sort of uh meat and potatoes like my meal if you will is probably like a Matt Wilpers. Mm-hmm. Um but I love every so often doing a um uh Alex Toussaint ride. Yes. Like the music and it's just I just find the guy to be hilarious. And yeah. I think some people find him to be very serious and motivating and that's great. I just I think the stuff he says is just it's just him and Cody Rigsby like they just make
0: yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. See this is why we're friends. Okay. So <laughs> Um, Cody Rigsby is one of my favorites because for me, like when I get on that bike, I want to escape. So I want to have a dance party. I want to be laughing the whole time. I don't really want to be thinking about the fact that I am pouring sweat and breathing really hard and doing work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's who I like to take when I really want my butt kicked and, um, And when I want to be yelled
1: at. Yeah. But but I have to say, Matt Wilpers, the whole zone thing, We're spending a lot of time on this, but it's okay. Uh, The zone thing works well for my like need to, it gets me into good routines. It's made me a better, uh, it's made me more efficient cycling. I noticed it when I went on my regular bike recently um, that I was like a better rider than I was with a group of people. And I was like riding better than people who are obviously way fitter than me because of like the mental stuff that I've learned. So cool. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is a good like metaphor for kind of, uh, you know, the thing we're going to talk about with Ignite, just the the leadership and coaching matters,
0: yeah. you know? So, well, and I want to answer the question you had asked yeah, yeah. a few minutes ago before we went down the Peloton rabbit hole um, about how it works, having a new initiative within yeah. a company. Um, so the... The thing about being entrepreneurial is that no matter how hard you try, you can't help yourself. And so um, in running Open Up, it's it's actually not enough for me to just be publishing programs and um, the innovation that is involved with the partnerships or the development of our own proprietary materials or the you know various ancillary services that we're constantly bringing to market around those. all of that is really exciting, and I love it. And it's, you know, as you get to higher and higher levels of leadership, you're you might have the idea, but then you're delegating to other teams and departments to ultimately execute. And one of my many problems, and or strengths is that, um, my mind just never stops. And I'm constantly thinking about what else can we be doing to help more kids? And, um, when Penelope was old enough to begin learning to read and I started teaching her to read, it just opened up a Pandora's box of more ideas for me and it further, um, you know, lit this fire in me and this passion that I have around my belief that learning to read is a fundamental human and civil right and every single child deserves the right to learn to read and I was reminded of what it was like to be a first grade teacher teaching a classroom of kids to read I was reminded that it is not difficult to teach a child to read And then I was outraged because so many children in our country, 65% of fourth graders, this is based on NAEP, and this was prior to the pandemic, are not proficient readers, and that is criminal. And it's only gotten worse since COVID, and it affects the most vulnerable, marginalized kids in our society. And so I was chewing on this problem, walking around with like, chronic anger about the fact that so many kids don't learn how to read and that is just utterly unacceptable because it doesn't have to be that way. And the pandemic then presented this opportunity as I was watching the way that educators were using Zoom, as I was um, mentoring a teacher in East Oakland and helping her uh, take the curriculum she was using an open up resources curriculum called Bookworms and teach it over Zoom. And I was watching within her first three weeks from when she baseline assessed her kids to when she then started implementing the curriculum in small groups over Zoom. And then she shared her data with me three weeks later after the first round of progress monitoring and her kids were learning to read. And every possible odd was stacked against her and her students. And I was like, there is a model here. And um, because reading and teaching kids to read is something that is so near and dear to my heart, like it is truly apart from being Penelope's mom, it is the reason I think that like I was put on this planet to help as many kids learn how to read. That is what I wanna spend all day, every day doing. And so I started tinkering with this concept that became Ignite Reading. And whereas normally in my company, when I have an idea, it kind of gets delegated. In this instance, I was like, no, this is mine. Like we have this organization open up is so strong and so stable. And I need a passion project. And my leadership team <laughs> was like, "Yes, yes, me. you need a passion project because you drive us crazy when you don't have enough things to keep you busy." So, yes, you do your passion project.
1: But is Open Up? I mean, are Open Up people working on it, or is this a whole separate thing?
0: So, um, it's a strategic initiative within Open Up.
1: Okay, and
0: right. um, it's it's one of our programs, but the difference is that it's a program that the CEO is directly building I mean like literally like my sleeves are rolled up and my hands are dirty doing the work and being in this instance a player coach which for the for the staff members who have been hired specifically to work on this program it's a little bit odd that they're more staff members who then have like a direct line to the CEO of Mm -hmm the company, right. um, <laughs> which like on the one hand, I feel a little bit sorry for them. And then on the other hand, I'm like, no, what a what a phenomenal opportunity for you.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, this is, the, we, all of us in ed tech, you and I both worked at wireless. I was there for like, that's the longest job I ever had besides my own thing This is how Larry Berger did stuff. And it worked out pretty well for wireless. You know, he would, he would get hands on and that probably sometimes feels overbearing to some, but at the same time, you know, when you're an idea person like you or or Larry and you have such a product vision. um,
0: That's exactly right. I have a vision. I have a very clear vision for exactly what we need to do to scale, ignite in order to ultimately ensure that every single first grader in our country learns to read on time. People talk about third grade, make sure kids are reading by third grade. I don't know about you, Doug, but would you be okay if Scout didn't learn to read until third grade. Does that sit well with you? No, no. What white parent is okay with like, yeah, I'll just wait till my kid's in third grade. And then as long as they learn how to read, it's cool. No. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet we have this this mantra, reading by Mm -hmm. grade three. No. yeah, Reading by the end of first grade, if not before, because by the end of first grade is when kids should have cracked the code and should be able to read with automaticity and fluency. Every kid deserves to start second grade an on level reader ready to begin building knowledge.
1: So are you, are you a, would you categorize it as a tutoring service, Ignite? Because that's a field now. Right. That's
0: a, I right. know, Esser I know. it's ESSER dollars thing.
1: have poured in and all these districts are hiring tutoring services. And yeah, so
0: everybody tutoring yeah. is the thing. Every ed tech company is suddenly a tutoring company.
1: Yeah, what oh, like rem- like is- Remind, the messaging service that we have with our kids' school, Like they're like, hey, we have tutoring now. Like,
0: what?
1: Send me text messages.
0: Yeah, um, so here's the thing. There's a lot of research that shows that tutoring works, right? Mm-hmm. And what we are doing at Ignite is tutoring. But the vision here, what I'm trying to do is fundamentally change the way that kids are taught to read in this country in order to ensure that every child has the opportunity once and for all to learn how to read on time. And do that by tutoring, but the vision here and what we're trying to achieve is is to transform in partnership with schools and districts, their K2 literacy ecosystem.
1: Is this more or less scaling just the New York City literacy coach? <laughs>
0: um, maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, like if I could clone myself and there could be so many of me and helping so many schools and teachers become, you know, kick-ass reading teachers, I would love that. And I, and I guess in a way that is what's happening because mm-hmm. um, essentially what We're doing with Ignite is we are building a national core of highly trained data driven reading teachers. And these are folks who may or may not have education experience in their background. Many of our tutors come to us as college students or senior citizens who are retired. And we are able through our Um, certification program to not only teach them about the science of reading, which is the why, but also train them in an evidence-based foundational reading skills Mm -hmm. curriculum, which is the how. And what we're essentially doing is then giving them the opportunity through this certification process to work with kids to have that practicum experience to get intensive real-time coaching and feedback so that they get stronger and better. The kids are getting one-on-one intensive instruction, 75 minutes a week, 15 minutes a day, five days a week with this adult who is not only a highly trained reading teacher, who we are holding accountable to implementing this curriculum with the utmost fidelity, but they're also building a relationship. And there's this whole social-emotional component that wraps around it as well. And, um, I think, you know, the vision here, I mean, it's, it's multifaceted, but one of the things I think about is the ripple effect. And if you are a college student and you learn how to teach a child to read and you experience that, then when you become a parent someday, you bring that into your parenting and you can better teach your own child and advocate for your child plus your nieces and nephews and every other child in your family but we also have an opportunity to ignite the teacher talent pipeline because I don't know about you Doug like my first two years of college I had no idea what I actually wanted to do and so if we're working with freshmen and sophomores and they're having this transformative experience, which it is, it is truly transformative to experience teaching a child to read. Mm -hmm. We have an opportunity to get, you know, people who didn't contemplate becoming educators to then become educators and then step into the classroom already knowing how to teach kids to read.
1: What do the classroom teachers, like what's the role of the existing school organization in this? How does it work?
0: Yeah, so um, we talked earlier in this conversation about empathy and something I have um, deep empathy for is how hard it is to be a classroom teacher, especially in the last two years. And so when you think about um, everything that is on a teacher's plate and everything that a teacher is being asked to do, it is overwhelming and it is not sustainable. And then we wonder why we have um, teacher burnout and, you know, the amount of labor shortages that we have right now that are only anticipated to increase. And so one of the things I was thinking a lot about in designing Ignite was how do we create a foundational skills safety net? There is no teacher that will say that it isn't important for kids to learn how to read. And yet, teachers across the country are raising their hands, saying, we're hearing about this thing called the science of reading. We're either going through SOR trainings or listening to podcasts or going down the Google rabbit hole to teach ourselves about science of reading. And then we're coming back into our own schools and classrooms, and we're looking at our materials and we're like, what the what? These materials are not aligned to science of reading day in and day out. My kids aren't learning how to read. I'm doing my best to try and cobble together resources to fix this problem. And yet, like, I know there could be a better way. And until such time as, you know, we're systematically across schools and districts, adopting and then implementing with fidelity and providing teachers with all of the training and support they need to teach these evidence-based reading curricula, right? We need a safety net for the kids. And so that's what Ignite is, right? We are a foundational skills safety net. We come in, we are just focused upon the lower strands of something called Scarborough's reading rope, which are um, related to word recognition and fluency and making sure that kids learn to crack the code. The English language is a code. Kids need to learn to systematically um, crack it and in order to do that they need explicit direct systematic coherent instruction and teachers know that they need this but they are not able to provide it even more so, yeah even yeah. more so teachers recognize that kids need it to be differentiated because where you are on the of mm-hmm. learning right. degree may not be where I am and how does a teacher possibly differentiate To 25 to 30 kids in a classroom. And so we're really intentional when we partner with a school about bringing teachers in from the outset and explaining, here's who we are. Here's what we're doing. It's no secret. Anytime you want, you can do a virtual ride along with us and you can see what we're doing with your students because we know that it's hard to give them up for 15 minutes a day and not know exactly what's happening. So we're super transparent about what we're doing. And then approximately every three to four weeks, we have data. This is a super data rich program. And that data is being shared back with school leaders who um, were then having conversations with about how that gets distilled to teachers in a way that is useful so that they can be supporting the work in small groups that they're leading.
1: Wow. All right. So there's it seems there's there's a deep partnership between classroom teacher and the Ignite people. And they're doing these sessions like Zoom.
0: Yeah, it's all via Zoom. It's entirely virtual, everything we're doing. Hmm. So we we um, recruit and train our tutors virtually. And we um, partner with schools and kids transition out of their classrooms for 15 minutes a day into a space that's been designated for ignite they um, put on their little ignite headphones and then they log into zoom and they meet one-on-one with their tutor
1: and what ages what grades
0: we're working with kindergarten all the way through fifth grade but we feel very strongly that the sweet spot is first grade Uh It's a way to proactively ensure that kids learn to read on time. And what our data is telling us is that we can take a first grader at the beginning of first grade, we can close their kindergarten gaps and cover everything they need to learn for foundational skills over the course of first grade. So essentially like a year and a half of learning, we can do that in one school year so that they leave first grade on level readers.
1: How far are we into this passion project? How long have you been working on this?
0: I just launched it in August. Nice. So um, so last August, we had a grant from Zoom.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I ran a pilot in Oakland. Yep. And we had um, 30 tutors and 100 kids. But coming out of that pilot, while our results were like insane, they were so strong. um, You know, we found that we were able to... um, like the rate at which kids were learning were two and a half X, what it would be in a classroom setting, assuming that the school was implementing the curriculum with fidelity. Okay. Um, so we were, we were thrilled with the results. Plus there was this whole social emotional component that we hadn't even accounted for, but we were watching the way that that was playing into the work as well and how profound it was. But the thing that bothered me was that we'd gone direct to parents. So even though it was all Title I families or families who attended Title I schools, there's, it was still inequitable, right? Because it's the the parents who are opting in.
1: Yep, yep.
0: And so I wanted to embed as part of a school day, and I wanted to understand what it would mean for this to be part of literacy programming during the school day. So we had our first in-school pilot that launched this past fall. And we were serving um, 70 students at one school. Within the first two months of the pilot, we were again seeing the success of the program. plus we had ironed out like what it means to partner with a school. Our results were tracking with the results we had seen from summer. So I was like, it's time, it's time to add more kids, right? I'm so eager to get as many kids into this program as possible. So in January, we added five more schools across another two states. At that point in January, we were serving about 350 kids in both charter and um, district schools in urban and rural settings. And then we just did another phase of expansion this past April. So we are now in six states, 13 schools and have about 630 kids in the program. In fall, we will expand again and this will be our final pilot phase. And we will serve approximately 1200 kids And I anticipate at that point we'll be in probably about 20 schools and close to 10 states. And at this point, you know, 1,000 to 1,200 kids is really important because what I want to know before I throw gasoline on this fire is that with that many students, we can still get the results and we can still maintain the quality of the program. Because you talked about, there are all these tutoring companies and there are a lot of folks who are opportunistically going after Mm ESSER money and becoming tutors and what they are doing is not grounded in research. It is not grounded in an evidence-based program. It is not rigorous in terms of the training and accountability that the tutors have. And
1: I I, I mean, I want to push back. I don't think you can say that uniformly across the board. Not
0: uniformly, but a lot of what's out there.
1: Yeah, I think some companies got going pretty quick, and uh, you know, it's it's the it's unclear. But I think the thing that's carrying it though is that just you know, from the superintendent side of things, everybody knows it's common sense that if you have access to one to one instruction, that's good for kids. So. Even if it's not, but Uh
0: but when we're talking about so many students who are already so far behind, whether it's mathematics or English language arts, the quality of that one-to-one instruction matters. And there is a difference between a volunteer, bless their hearts for volunteering, but a volunteer showing up and having no curriculum and just kind of following into what the student needs. And yes, there is value there but we are talking about massive gaps that need to be urgently closed. And again, I bring it back to like, what would you want for your own child, right? Yeah, You would want the very best tutor, somebody who is highly trained, somebody who is going to get in there and make sure that they get precisely what they need while also building a caring relationship. And so I think that, you know, that intentionality around the program design matters and I am highly skeptical that the vast majority of tutoring companies that have just popped up are actually going to provide that in a way that is going to truly move the needle north, so we can stamp out these abysmal results that say, for example, that only sixty-five percent of kids are proficient readers.
1: Well, let's 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 see what happens, right? The jury's out. Um, we're only a couple of years into this, and I know most districts are thinking, "I've got funding for this. If I can get my kid a one-to-one instructor." particularly my kids who need intervention, I'm going to do it and we'll sort of monitor it. And what I've been telling people uh, is, you know, like any district leaders that ask me to, to keep, keep, keep the portfolio diversified right now, try everything if you can, or try a few different things so that then you can figure out which one works. But early literacy is, is a very different animal than, um, you know, a tutoring service in pre-algebra or um, world history or whatever, right? It's a, it's a totally different, that's why the textbooks have always been different, the, right? It's, a, you're, you're in a highly specialized area of instruction that is really requires a lot more science in terms of the method delivery pedagogy, right? Right. So that, and you're going to stay there, Ignite's going to stay in that, that K5 literacy space?
0: Yes. because okay. There is so much work to do.
1: Who's funding it? Are the districts contributing or are you getting grants or how's it being funded?
0: So, um, the, so we pay our tutors and the direct cost for us to, in order you know to pay our tutors to deliver the services is covered through the district's paying for the service. Okay. All of the overhead, my literacy coaches, um, everyone else on the team, I'm covering those costs through grants.
1: Cool. That's great. And that that's the advantage of having open up as a nonprofit, right? I mean you can yeah, that's great. Um, you know, because we we have seen and you and I you and I experienced when we worked together, uh at like to so I was a I was a client because Jess introduced me to everybody and it was a really great run. Um and thank you again. That was fun. Great client, uh, great to be part of it. Um and this was before the IEI days, of course, but one of the things we experienced there is that because it's a for-profit, um, there were districts, districts who basically got grant money, um, that, you know, what I experienced as a person who was interfacing with the districts is that there wasn't as much skin in the game because they didn't have to cut a purchase order themselves. They got all this free stuff dropped on them. And then we had trouble kind of solidifying the relationship at the district level. And, um, you know, that, that can be challenging for an implementation. I think it's, it's, wise of you to get the districts to pony something up because that gets them engaged and it gets the governance, the board of ed engaged because when money's going out, they've got to be involved.
0: Yeah. The, the skin in the game is really important and the intentionality right now. I have more districts who want to partner with us than I have seats in the program. Right. Yeah. Because being so intentional about honing the quality before we, we do um, the amount of like the level of rapid scale that yeah, will ultimately right. enable us to get to more kids. And so as I'm talking with school and district leaders, what I'm working to understand is. You know, what is your bigger picture plan around how you want to transform your literacy ecosystem? And then how does Ignite fit into that strategy and that intentionality is. Is really important because it means that then they're going to treat this as an important initiative and make sure that it's a priority within any of the schools who are implementing. And I think that that's all playing into the results that we're seeing as well. And um, you know, them them paying for it is a way of showing that it is that much of a priority. This is such a priority that it is a line item in our budget. It is something that beyond the funding cliff that will inevitably come when ESSER money dries up,
1: That's we're why. working
0: this into yeah. our operational budgets. It's the general
1: fund, yep.
0: Right, because it's bigger than just closing COVID gaps. It's about fundamentally re-envisioning how we ensure that kids learn how to read.
1: The ability to slowly develop not I'm not saying you're moving slowly I think you're moving uh deliberately and going through several phases of a pilot that's a luxury that a lot of companies don't get when building new product and I hope it serves you and the districts you're working with well um it's an interesting model I think compared to a lot of the ones we we talked to that's why I was glad I was you know interested to have you on and talk about what's going on. And, you know, we'll certainly share it out with everybody who listens. We get a lot of our district leaders do listen here. We usually have, um, soups on here or, um, sometimes policy wonks, but, uh, you know, this has been cool to explore the model and we wish you guys luck and let us know how we can help.
0: Thanks Doug. I really, um, appreciate this opportunity to reconnect and share with you what I've been up to. And, um, Even just talking about all of this right now, it's a reminder of how all of these unique experiences ultimately coalesce to then be able to build something like Ignite where, like you said, I have the luxury of being deliberate, but a big part of that is because of everything I've learned leading up until this point. And I now understand that if I want this to be what I believe it can be to serve so many children, I have to be deliberate.
1: Yeah. Cool, well, you're also an author. I want to make sure we talk about this too. So we have a we have a copy of your book on on uh, on my kid's bookshelf, and um, you know, it's a it's a it's a powerful thing that you did, I think. And Jess was even on what what show? You were on some talk show, right?
0: Oh, I don't even remember. I was on some talk show on the Hallmark Channel.
1: Yeah, on the Hallmark <laughs> Channel,
0: it was awesome.
1: So, like, talk about that a little bit. I you mean, know, because you're not just a literacy instructor; you're also a published author, which is just very cool.
0: Yeah. um, So going back to this theme of, you know, Jess is obsessed with teaching kids to read and reading and um, literacy. And as I went through um, breast cancer treatment, one of the things that was really hard for me was trying to make sense of why this has had happened to me. I didn't have a history of breast cancer in my family. I didn't carry the gene. I thought I was super healthy. I had just given birth to my precious daughter. And then out of nowhere, I have this diagnosis of breast cancer. Um, Also at a very young age, I was just turned 33. And um, one of the things that I noticed as I met other young women who were battling breast cancer, who had young children was that they didn't know how to talk to their kids about what was going on. And so they didn't talk to their kids. And to me, it seemed like such a lost opportunity because I was drawing so much strength from my infant daughter. And I also knew having taught first grade that young children are, you know they're very perceptive. So even if you don't tell them things, they pick up on it. And that young children can they can make sense of very complex things if they're explained in the right way and that they can then show up with love and empathy and compassion in a way that a lot of adults don't know how. And so I wanted to find a way for these moms to be able to tell their kids what was going on so that their kids could give them the love and support that that they needed and deserved. And so I started writing this children's book in my head as I was going through treatment. And ultimately, um, once I finished chemo, sat down and, you know, banged out a draft of it. And it's, it's a, a way to flip the script, right? It's an empowering way for a parent going through cancer treatment, any kind of cancer to talk about what's going on, right? So you know a lot of cancer survivors have surgery to get the cancer out of the body and so then you have scars and rather than thinking of them as scars and ugly we can embrace them and celebrate them as warrior wounds and i talk about how the kids kiss mama's warrior wounds and and they do that because cancer hates kisses and so the whole book is simultaneously explaining what's happening to the parent but also um how cancer hates those things. You know, mom feels sad because cancer is sad (laughs) and mom cries because mom is human. And like, we have a dance party and we dance off the tears. Why? Because cancer hates dance parties. Um, so that's, that's the story. It's called cancer hates kisses. It's not the book I thought I would ever write. Um, I'm glad it's out there. Yeah. You ever think of lot of people and yeah
1: all the families who all the families of the kids who've been through it uh who read it I'm, I'm sure you think about that a lot and I know I do and uh thanks for doing it yeah thanks yeah Doc. awesome all right uh we probably have to we've been talking a long time we have to finish this up but I hope <laughs> I'm going to see you at, at something soon like ISTE or something and yeah um yeah w- you know you you guys are how many people work at open up now
0: Oh my gosh. We are more than 50 full-time employees and over a hundred contractors touching the work in some way.
1: That's insane. Yeah. Good for you. Um, but yeah, hope to see you soon and, uh, we'll, we'll continue chatting of course, but, um, thanks for being on education thought leaders. It's great to catch up with you.
0: Thanks, Doug.
1: All right. This has been education thought leaders. Brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation.
0: As superintendents, we don't have peers in our We, you can have people who support you, but no one's in the CRC. Talking about shared solutions, talking about collaborating at a very, very high level. So coming here kind of gives you a little rejuvenation, that little pick-me-up. Superintendents and vendors from across the country, and that the whole exploration and development of new partnerships is critical.